0: We'll listen to the Lord today from John chapter 18. Please turn with me there. John 18. Let's read together. I'll read for us verses 28 through 40. That'll be... The focus of our study today, even though this particular pericope, paragraph, story uh, continues um, on into the next chapter, we'll break this into two parts. Today we're looking at John 18, 28 to 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Recently, I finished a book on the importance of the year 1776. 1776. Uh, The author claims that uh, this was the year that changed the world. Now, we think of it as the year that changed the United States. This guy's not an American. He's British. He says it's the year that changed the world. He argues that it changed in a myriad of ways, but one of the most significant is that for the first time, it actually became right and celebrated for kings with total authority to be deposed and for the self to retain the right of rule. Think about it. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And what's supposed to be so self-evident? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's interesting, that was even a debate when the framers of uh, the Declaration of the Independence were, were wrestling through that. The, the first draft actually said, we hold these truths to be divinely disclosed. And yet, even that kind of authority over man was removed and said it is self-evident. It is something that we determine in and of ourselves that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so, the American government would resist the tyranny of the British Empire, and it would catch on. It would catch on around the world. The next place that it would uh, flame up uh, with great historical significance would be none other than France. But it didn't go so well over there. Instead of just saying, no, you don't have the right to rule us, King Louis XVI and his bride Marie Antoinette would, within a few years of the French Revolution being uh, initiated, literally lose their heads. It was death to imperium. 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 A friend of mine introduced me to that word. It sounds like something that a 13 year old would use when he sees it in a dictionary and wants to impress his more intellectual friends. But it's actually a very useful word. Imperium basically is um, where the buck finally stops, it's the idea of absolute and total authority. I read from my friend here. He says, Imperium means supreme power or absolute dominion. And it gets at the idea of who makes the final decision in a society. Who is the authority to which all other authorities must answer? Who can make heads roll, literally speaking, without threat of reprisal because it's in the job description? That's who has Imperium. And what was actually rejected in the spirit of 1776 that was that any human being would ever have imperium people as a whole the demos could have imperium that you know they could make decisions but one person being like like the final arbiter of right and wrong of good and bad we're done with that So even now, when we still have like uh, monarchies, they're constitutional monarchies. Uh, The the current king of England is really just a prop. (laughs) He's a figurehead. No offense to him. But he can't make anything happen. (laughs) And I'm not trying to lament politics this morning. I'm just trying to expose to you that we have, as, as people in the West, as people from the 21st century, we, we have um, a conflicted relationship with imperium. We, we tend to view human imperium as, as an irritant, as a threat. <laughs> and yet, what Jesus is doing in this particular story Is establishing imperium in a very ironic way, admittedly. Normally, when you and I think of someone having absolute power, we don't think of them being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And yet, in this particular passage, and in the verses to come, king, kingship will be repeated over and over and over again. Have you noticed that the word king, to the best of my recollection, only shows up one other time in the book of John? And that was in chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000 and they tried to make him king. And he said, no, this is not the kind of kingship I've come to establish. And yet here, As Jesus is on the cusp of being crucified, the word king gets used inordinately. Imperium is being established here, but in a rather ironic way. It's not the kind of imperium that irritates us, though it might confuse us. So, the the kingship of King Jesus is being established as he progresses to his crucifixion. And we're going to see it unfold over two weeks in particular. But in the amount of time and space that we can devote to the story today, I would just have you notice this inquisition of the kingship of Jesus. It's not really an investigation. It's an inquisition. He's been viewed as a king and they're trying to search him out. They want a guilty Conviction. And so, story wise, let me just tell you where we're headed. We're just going to look at three different progressions of this inquisition. We're going to uh, particularly note the, the, the accusation, it's a rather vague one. Then we're going to look at the investigation, which is kind of half hearted. And then we're going to notice uh, the substitution. And it will continue on into the next verses. But I I want you to know that the story today, if I had to tell you what the story is about, it's about the Inquisition of King Jesus. But that's not the point. (laughs) Let me tell you the story, and then I'll tell you the point. Because you need to see it the way that John tells it. He's saying it in a way that we should enter in. And so here's my last warning before we actually start walking through the text together. These verses are psychologically complex. Like, I'll just I'll tell you how this played out in my week. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be, like, I know this passage. I mean, just like preachers kind of have an idea, like when they're going in, like, oh, this is home run. I'm, I, I might be done by Friday, you know, kind of thing. and I'm counseling appointments last night because I'm still wrestling through, like, why did he say that? I mean, you start reading this carefully, and you're like, what is going on? It's psychologically complex. And I'm not a psychologist but I'll do my best to try to explain to you things that have already been revealed in the text and things that would have been well known to them historically that will take you behind some of the statements that are being made. So let's just follow it. Uh, this, this first movement, the accusation. At verse 28 just makes it clear that they, this, this unlikely group of Jews and some Roman soldiers, take Jesus, You know, they're shuffling Him around, He's arrested, He's bound, they take him from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now, we're missing a little bit of information because the last thing we saw was that Jesus was at the house of Annas. But Annas is Caiaphas' father-in-law, and the way that houses work in those days is everybody lives with the Familia. So likely, Annas' house and Caiaphas' house is on the same property. It's shared by the same courtyard. And so, since Annas was like the godfather figure who held the real power, and Caiaphas was more like the political puppet, his son-in-law, they were probably doing these trials of Jesus, the Jewish trials of Jesus, in the same place. It would have been easy to go from Annas and that first um, like assessment of Jesus' worthiness to be taken to trial, and then to the next group, and then to the next group. The point is He's been shuffled all around and now it moves from a, a Jewish investigation to something Roman. I mean, you even see it in the, in the text. It says that he's taken to, at least in our translation, it says the governor's headquarters, uh, but the Greek word is praetorion or praetarium, something that you would recognize. It, it was basically the, the governor's uh, house in... Jerusalem because he didn't typically govern from there. Like for the Roman like mind the capital, like the the hub of that particular area was Caesarea. Think of the name, Caesarea. It was named after Caesar. Like that's where their hub was, but they recognized that the Jews thought Jerusalem was the capital. So they built themselves a little palace down in Jerusalem so that when they would have these huge festivals, they could show up in residence and make sure nothing squirrely happened. It's kind of like if there's going to be a big concert at Madison Square Garden. They call in extra security. They call in extra forces. Three times a year, these Jews would go and, and like fill up Jerusalem. And so, he needed in this case, Pilate needed like a summer house. There's some multiple home people in the room. You get it. Like you've got the one place that you live to do things here. You've got another place that you live to do things there. This was the governor's house. He is in residence. And here's the deal. They need to take advantage of the fact that he's around. They don't want to just do a normal trial. They want to do one when they have access to the guy who was ultimately in charge on behalf of Rome. And so that they lead him to the house of Caiaphas, to his praetorium. And it says it was early morning. I could imagine it's probably around six o'clock. They've been doing these trials all night long. And it says, this is ironic, they themselves, these Jewish leaders, the temple police, and some of these other members of the Sanhedrin, they did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I remember learning about irony in the 8th grade. And I still don't know how to define it. But I know it when I see it. How ironic. These men have been plotting the murder of an innocent man all night long, but they're not willing to step onto the property because they want to continue participating in Passover. Now, to, to show you how ridiculous this is, I want you to know that even though the Jews had some pretty stout laws about like ritual purity. There was nothing about the house of a Gentile making them unclean. That was one of the rules that they made up. And So, so here are these guys. They're, they're not even obeying a, a small rule in the Bible. They're not even obeying a rule in the Bible. They're, make, they're obeying a made-up rule so that they can, in their consciences, participate in the Passover festivities. Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles were kind of like married together and it was like a week-long religious party, and here's the deal. If you did something, this is hard for us to understand because we we never feel ceremonially unclean. We typically only feel physically unclean. But when you were ceremonially unclean, you couldn't participate in the party. You had to go do these special rituals, uh, and then you could go back in, like after sundown. Because they don't want to miss any of the food, they don't want to miss any of the festivities, they were like, Okay, we're we're gonna speak to you from out here. Uh, imagine uh, cutting your grass on a hot summer day. You're sweating like a dog, and you know what that does because now all the grass clippings stick to you. So not only do you smell like outside, you smell like sweat. Like there's just certain things you don't do. You don't come inside the house and plop yourself on the couch, unless you're an idiot. If married, I guess if you're unmarried, you can do that. There's an uncleanness that's there. You sense it. You're like, uh, okay, I can't participate in what's going on, even in my own living room, until things are right. They would feel that ceremonially. There were certain rituals that they felt like they had to endure. And here they are. It's not even real dirt, it's just the idea of a Jew being in the home of a Gentile. They're standing at a distance. And it says this that they. They, they wanted to eat the Passover, but they need Pilate. They need Pilate to do something for them. And what is that? Look at verse 29. It says, so Pilate went outside of them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, this is pretty interesting because like we're introduced to Pilate and I have to be careful here because like, I like history. Um, and you could really geek out on Pilate. Look him up in any encyclopedia. You'll find out what you need to know. Here's the highlights. Basically, he was a a wannabe ruler. He got his position because he married in. So basically, uh, Caesar Augustus had a granddaughter. He married the granddaughter. But in and of himself, he was incompetent. He was not a good ruler. So he marries in. And by the way, like... His best political connection had just died a few years earlier, and here's the deal. The guy had a track record of doing really dumb stuff. Normally, like, you have one job as a Roman procurator, and you know what that is? To quell rebellion, just keep people from resisting against Rome. One job. You ever seen those memes, you have one job? All right, this guy, one job. And three different times in his reign, he would rile these people up to the degree that they would come out in mass and revolt against him and you know what that would cause it would cause him to actually to rally the troops of rome to come and slaughter hundreds of people at a time three different times he did some really dumb stuff to infuriate the jews three different times he had to actually assassinate a huge number of people making him look terrible in the eyes of rome who just said keep the peace keep the peace He's skating on thin ice, to use an American phrase. He's already, I would say, four strikes are out. He's on three. And he doesn't need any political problems right now. He just needs to make it through Passover, get back up to Caesarea, and have no incident. And yet, even though he was the one that likely gave the green light to the Roman cohort assisting the uh, temple police to go out and get Jesus, he asked the Jews, what do you charge him with? Because he wants any kickback to be on the Jewish people and not on himself. So he says, hey, okay, um, what's your accusation? And you could tell they're pretty, they're pretty ticked off about this. They wanted him just to rubber stamp the execution. And he doesn't do it. And, and notice how they respond. The, the psychology behind this is fascinating. He says in verse 29... What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him. Notice this: they don't give an answer. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. The term they use is an evil doer. He's a criminal. He's an evil doer. We we um. I mean, like he's a bad guy. Like you should you should kill him. But they won't say. They won't say exactly at first what it is. You read in the other gospel accounts that this back and forth continues to such a degree where they finally come out and say it. But guess what? They're scared too. Pilate's scared of losing his job, and they're scared of losing their job. What's their job? They like sitting in rule over the people. They like being the mall cops of Jerusalem. And the people love Jesus. Jesus. They are obsessed with him. Did you not remember? I know we've been like studying this what seems like forever, but it was only like a day before that hundreds of people were yelling when Jesus was riding in on a donkey, save now, save now. Like they were already thinking of him as the king. They can't have a revolt either. So they're hoping, they try to put it back on Pilate. Like Pilate, you kill him. If they just come out and say that he's the king of Israel, the people may recognize that they recognized him as the king of Israel, and now they've got a revolt on their hands. It's a complicated thing. And I think you can get it. I think Here's my best uh, attempt to get into the mind. Do you remember junior high? <laughs> Somebody laughed. The insecurity... No offense to anybody in the 6th or 8th grade. We've all been there. But the insecurity of being in the 6th, 7th, or 8th grade. Like, you have this little group. You may have one or two people that like you. You may have 10 people that like you. But then all of a sudden, the new kid shows up. The girl could be pretty. The guy could be athletic. Or in our modern context, the guy could be dorkier than you are. Because that seems to be what makes people popular these days. But now, all of a sudden, you're like a little concerned. (laughs) You know, like they're moving into your territory. You don't want to lose your power. And like, let's say that it was just the typical athlete kind of thing. Like, you could be an eighth grader and duck in a basketball. And you'd be like, well, I can make a three-pointer. Like, there's a... There's this spot where you're trying to downplay the other person. You're not making the best decisions. You lose objectivity. Uh, Jealousy is a terrible taskmaster. So, Pilate's insecure. He's afraid of losing his rule because he's made such a terrible litany of decisions over recent years. These people, the, the Jewish leaders, are afraid of losing their rule. And by the way, lest you think I'm reading into the situation Walk with me through three quick scenarios. Jewish leaders, in chapter 7, verses 40 to 52, Jesus is actually like teaching that he is the great I am. And so they call an emergency meeting, and do you remember what happens? They said, we've got we've to arrest him. We've got to arrest him right now. And in fact, once they get out there, they even say, no, let's just go ahead and stone him. And they try to stone him, but Jesus disappears. Why? What were they concerned about? Why did they want to stone him? It wasn't for heresy. It was because he was popular. The same thing happened again in chapter 8 and again in chapter 10. And then here's here's the best one Lazarus. You remember what happened with Lazarus? Lazarus comes back to life, and it's at that point. That everybody starts coming out to meet Lazarus and to see what's going on, and they start following Jesus, and this is what the text says. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I'm quoting them. And it's at this point that they decide that one man needs to die by, at the hands of Rome to kill this thing. Why can't they just do a little mob violence? Because they did that from time to time. Even though they didn't have authority to kill people, Rome, it's a big, it's a big bureaucracy. You could literally get away with murder. They would eventually stone Stephen they would stone the woman caught in adultery. Even though they didn't have the legal authority, because they were men in charge, they could cover up murder as they wanted. If they wanted to have stoned Jesus, they would have, except for the fact that he's popular. People would have known. And so it's at that point that they decide that they need Rome to do this. In fact, even after Jesus goes to eat dinner with Lazarus, It says that more people are following Jesus and they're going away and believing in him and then they decide, you know what, we need to kill Lazarus too. It's straight up jealousy. But to to kill the guy, they've got to do it at the hands of Rome. They need him to rubber stamp their conviction. So here we've got Pilate trying to dodge a political bullet. And so he tries one more time to put this back on them and look at verse 31. He says, Pilate Pilate said to them, after they say uh, he's a bad guy, Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And this is when they were like, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Here, they actually play Pilate. Because remember, they actually don't have the authority. Even though they would kill somebody at the drop of a hat if they needed to, here they say out loud, we don't have the power to do that. You're the one with the capital power. All we've got is this stinking taser. And you've got a lethal firearm. You've got to be the one to put them to death. So now Pilate's forced. Pilate's forced to step into the situation. He's going to be on the hook. Even though he wants them to do it He can't make any more mess-ups. He needs to make them happy to some degree. And so, we summarize. The Jewish people are saying, this crime is serious, you need to kill this guy. But they they don't get specific about it. Two, they want Pilate to do it the Roman way, so that they will not experience the ire of the people. And then look at verse 32, this is amazing. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death He was going to die. Have you ever thought about that, friends? If the penalty of sin was just death, why couldn't they just stone Him? Why couldn't they just stab Him? Why do we make such a big deal of a cross? Because Jesus said He was going to die that way. There was no more notorious, despicable, dishonorable death on the planet than crucifixion. And I have to be careful not to preach the sermon from two weeks coming now. But just trust me in the moment. And Jesus said, that's the kind of death I'm going to die. Remember when he was speaking in John chapter 3? He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He's not talking about if everybody makes a big deal out of me at a party. He was specifically referring to Numbers chapter 11 when that serpent, brazen serpent, was lifted up on a pole. He was saying, if I am lifted up in that way, if I am lifted up as like this disgusting symbol that can bring about those salvation, that's where life will come. He said it two times that he would die in that particular way. And he not only said it, but guess who also said it? The prophet Isaiah made it exceedingly clear that he would suffer, that this coming prophet, this coming Messiah would suffer in a way that could only befit the shameful death of crucifixion. And guess who also pointed it out? The psalmist in Psalm 22, when he typified the messianic existence culminating in a death that could only be described or fulfilled, excuse me, in terms of crucifixion. Read Psalm 22. The point is, all of this insecurity, all of this political back and forth is leading to the, the, the Jews and the Romans conspiring together to crucify Jesus according to the plan of God from eternity past. It seems so sloppy. It seems so haphazard. And yet, it was the plan all along. This is the kind of king that's being inquired of here. He is in control. Even as he's bound of the death, he will die. That's just the accusation. But this inquisition continues. And there's a second movement. We go from the accusation to the investigation. At this point, Pilate's stuck. He's going to have to take this case. And so we see what happens in verse 33. So, Pilate entered his headquarters, the praetorium, again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now think about this. There's been no mention in John so far of kingship in this context. Remember, nobody wanted to give a charge. But as as foolish as Pilate is, I mean, he still has imperial spies. He still has to sign a warrant to send out a Roman centurion. He knew what was going on. Even the other gospel accounts talk about that initial conversation being longer, and they finally come out and say he's a king. The point is, uh, Pilate has one job, remember? That's to keep peace. So guess what the only thing is he has to figure out about this guy? Not, was he jaywalking? But is he an insurrectionist? Is he somebody who will rebel against the Roman state, the Roman empire? So he just cuts straight to the chase. Like, He wants to get on with the party too. He says, okay, are you king of the Jews? Yes or no? Yes or no question. Like, this is pretty simple. But whether or not he intends it, Pilate has poorly worded the question. Whoever said there's no such thing as a bad question hasn't thought about it. (laughs) This is a bad question. And Jesus will not answer directly. Can I'll give you an example of a bad question. This is one of my favorites. Have you stopped beating your wife yet? You answer yes to that, it means you were beating your wife. You answer no to that, it means you're still beating your wife. There's no direct answer. There's a, there's a false assumption baked into the question. While it's not the same category of fallacy Pilate is still asking a question that has an assumption baked in that Jesus can't answer directly. So, he asks a question of the questioner, which is always the best way to do it. (laughs) He puts it back on him. Instead of Jesus saying, yes, I am a king, and thereby getting himself crucified because he's an enemy of the Roman state, or saying, no, I'm not a king, and thereby lying about his ministry, Jesus just instead asks back to him, Uh, Why are you asking? Is this for yourself or did you hear this from someone else? (laughs) Even in this moment, like Jesus is inquiring of the most powerful Roman in his Jewish state, of like, do you really want to know if I'm a king or is this just a legal proceeding for you? But the point is, Jesus dodges the impossible question by placing the pressure back on Pilate. Pilate's not amused. Even though I think the logic is rather amusing, you could tell he's pretty frustrated because this is what he says in verse thirty-five: "Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done?" Notice this. Like, I don't care about your Jewish policy. I don't care about your Jewish word games. I am not. Notice. I mean, like, he he has a history of hating the Jewish people and the culture, and he's like, "Look, I don't want to get involved in y'all's mess. I just need to know." What did you do? What did you do? Did you do something? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Did you hear it there? Jesus doesn't use the word king, but he does use the word kingship. It's brilliant. It is amazing. He's telling the truth about who he is, but he's not doing it in a way that will either endanger the doctrinal integrity of what he's come to do, or put him in the position of actually having died for his own sin or rebellion or wrong. Like people talk about the horns of the dilemma. Jesus is walking right through the middle of it. And notice what he says about his kingdom. This is interesting. It's the inquisition of the king. It reveals some things. There's two things that he will reveal about his kingdom. One is is its source. The other is its substance. He's saying, my kingdom, this kingship thing that you're trying to ask me about, it's way different than anything that you can imagine because it's not... It's not of this world. It's not from this world. It, here's how, this is how, how worldly kingship works power. Might makes right. Who writes history? The winners. Like, think about it. Pilate knows how kingship works, we don't. We know Queen Elizabeth and King Charles kind of like figurehead stuff, but like we don't really have a clue how like absolute power kingship works. The only way, the only way that someone else can get the power of a king is guess what? For them to die and then their child to take over. There's no election for a king that is not a kingship. How would anybody then ever change, how would a kingship ever change hands other than, like, birth? Revolution. The only way kingdoms ever switch hands are through murder. Because the king is, like, divinely inherited with this particular right, he has to be executed so that a new king can take over. So that's exactly what Pilate's listening out for. He's like, okay, kings are insurrectionists. This is what I may have to convict him over. And Jesus says, my kingship doesn't work like the kingships down here work. I'm I'm not going to have to kill someone to take over. This is totally otherworldly. It's different. He says, think about it. He tells Pilate, like he's reasoning with this, this Roman leader. Because think about it, if if I was, if I was the kind of king that you're concerned about, like, wouldn't my disciples have actually waged war against the the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders who tried to bring me into custody? But don't you know that I just like came along with them? I mean, the Peter incident notwithstanding. Thankfully, Jesus did a masterful PR job by putting Malchus' ear back on his head. But we already talked about Peter's idiocy. But like he's saying, no, we didn't, we didn't stage a coup, we didn't mount a rebellion, we didn't even resist arrests. That's not the kind of kingdom. I, it's a different source. That, and you need to know this the kingship of Jesus doesn't work like the Imperium that is so scary for you. It is something otherworldly, it is something from above. But let me say this and make it really clear it is not. Only otherworldly, it actually is intended to have an impact on this world. Some people will read this passage and be like, oh, well, Jesus is just king in our hearts. He doesn't actually intend for his kingship to extend into like the physical space in which we live, and that is not true at all. Jesus says, look, my kingship is not just spiritual, he's saying it's sourced in another place, but it will have impacts on the world around you. That's why he entered into the world, to have an impact on the world. So Don't by any means just kind of like buy into the lie that, okay, well, Jesus came just to rule in our hearts. He intends for the rule in our hearts to have an impact on our homes and our workplaces and the world around us. But it's sourced. It's sourced somewhere else and it's substantively different. Notice what Jesus also says. You say. Then Pilate said, "So you are king." He used the word kingship. So Pilate grabs onto this: "You are king." And Jesus answered, "You." It's emphatic in the Greek. "You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice." Now, that that sounds kind of deep because. Like now, all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, like, all right, now I've come to be a king and my realm, instead of being the, the kind of stuff that you see here in the Roman Empire, my realm consists of truth. My realm, let me put it this way, consists of reality. And those who give a rip about reality do what I say. Do You see the implication there. He's actually telling Pilate, the most powerful man, humanly speaking, that he's ever come in contact with, here's the implication. You're ruling a fantasy land, and I rule the real thing. Pardon the cultural reference. It's like Pilate is in the matrix, and Jesus is in the real world. He says, sure, you, you, you've got a kingdom. You've got to reign. You've got to rule. You're Yeah. But I rule reality. I'm in charge of the way things really are. And those who care about the way things really are, those who are awake to the truth, those who are not in the delusion, those who have not bought into the lie, those who have been exposed to the spiritual smelling salts and have woken up to the way things really are, they listen to my voice. And this causes Pilate to ask a question that we could spend six weeks discussing philosophically, but I don't think it's intended this way. He thinks about it for a second and says, what is truth? What is reality? Pilate's heard enough though to know that if Jesus does rule this like alternate real world that he's not aware of and that he's not even willing to think about at the end of the day he's actually not a threat to the Roman empire as he originally thought and so we move the inquisition continues but it in, it continues down a weird line because Like what started off with this vague accusation and then flowed into this kind of half-hearted investigation now moves into this ironic substitution. Here's the last movement we'll discuss today. Notice the substitution. After Pilate asked that question, he clearly doesn't think about it too long. He goes out and says, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you? And now notice how he jabs the religious leaders because he hates their guts. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now Pilate's thinking at this point, because the masses were claiming that Jesus was some kind of king earlier, He's thinking that maybe the masses will let him go. The custom has been fulfilled. He lives to dance another day. I mean, I, I don't care how much power you have. like The conscience still works. He doesn't want to wrongfully execute Jesus. And so he's like, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll satisfy their, their, their lust for, for blood by saying, like, alright, I've tried him. Um, we're going to actually like make a public spectacle of him. We'll mock and wink at the fact that he's the king of the Jews, uh, but let's let him off the hook because we'll just use this tradition that we've always used to let somebody out. And he says, "So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?" And clearly by this point, because there's been some back and forth, the crowd has grown, and it says they, talking about the Jewish people who have somehow been swayed, the ones who are present at least, not this man. But Barabbas, Barabbas is a fascinating individual, and I've, I've heard some amazing sermons on him in particular. I, don't you ever wonder, like, why does sometimes the author, like, give you the name? Like, sometimes it's like a certain woman was healed of such and such, or there was a kid who was healed. Every once in a while, a name is dropped. Barabbas has a fascinating name. His is is one that is um, intentionally vague, but it's a real name. It's kind of like we say stuff like, uh, any Tom, Dick, or Harry could do such and such. Which the funny thing is, I don't know that many people named Tom, Dick, or Harry, but I guess in the 50s that was a popular name. Those were popular names. Or we talk about a John Doe. It's an indescript name. Maybe there's a guy out there named John Doe. Uh, But we can imagine somebody being named that. Barabbas is the same thing. Barabbas is a vague name. And let me tell you what it specifically means. Bar means son. Abbas means father. The son of the father. In fact, some people, historians, have actually gone to try to research and they think his name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas. Jesus, the son of a father. And Jesus, the son of the father. But here's what you need to know about the guy beyond his name. Notice what he's being convicted for. It says he was a robber. I have no idea why that's in your Bible. Zero. But thankfully, my Bible has a translation note that clarifies it. There's a little one. And you go down to the bottom and it says, or an insurrectionist. The, the, The Greek word here doesn't just mean robber, it's the modern equivalent of our word terrorist. Here's a guy who, according to Matthew and Mark and Luke, murdered people to try to put himself in a position of power. Like he's an absolute rebel and he tries to take over and like this is the person that Jesus will stand in the place of it's mind blowing like like here we have like an inquisition of a supposed king and yet th- this one who is the true king is going to die in the place of the one who tried to take rule on himself this is beautiful all being unveiled within this inquisition. Like we're seeing like the kind of rule that Jesus offers is something that, that is not threatening to us, but it is something that we would treasure and value and want and desire. See, here's the truth, brothers and sisters. The imperium that irritates us to such a degree that, that we resist it, it always fades away. Whoever you think is the most powerful and the most strong and has imposed their will upon another, like it only lasts as long as that person is alive. I have to admit, I'm I'm not as uh, uh, cultured as I would like to be, but I do enjoy a bit of poetry. Not much. Most of it I was exposed to in high school. Do any of you remember that interesting poem by Shelley entitled Ozymandias? I'm just test. Anybody? Nobody. (laughs) Oh, two. Okay, the English teacher. Thank you. All right. (laughs) You should look it up. Ozymandias. I won't read for you the entire thing, but it's got an interesting history. So they find the tomb of Ramses II. This is in the early 1800s. Ramses II was believed to be the most powerful Pharaoh who ever existed. And so they find these columns with his name on it and they bring it to the Royal British Museum. And anyway, it's big news at the particular time. And so the the Greeks actually gave Ramses II the name Ozymandius. It's just the the same name, but in typical Greek flair. And and, and so Shelley actually describes his 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 sight of this monument to supposedly one of the most powerful figures who ever existed. He sees these two trunkless legs of stone. That's all that's there. Just two columns. Ozymandias, he's touting that he's the greatest king ever. And this is what Shelley says. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. So it's like... This imposing thing, and you're like, whoa, this guy was powerful. And then Shelley comments. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Notice that. It's a colossal wreck. This is what he's pointing at. This guy thought he was all-powerful and all that's left of him are two pieces of rock. The most powerful man that ever ruled. He had imperium, right? But it eventually just was a crumble of rocks in a British museum. Contrast that kind of imperium with what we have investigated here today. Jesus who erected no monument to himself beyond his own execution on a cross still ruling and reigning in the hearts of a billion plus people strong 2,000 years later in fact even Napoleon Bonaparte the would-be despot and ruler commented this about Christ I thought it's fascinating he claimed from his experience of human nature, that Jesus Christ is no mere man. And by the way, Napoleon was not a Christian. But he said Jesus Christ is no mere man. The impact that Jesus Christ had on the souls of people, from his point of view, had transcended time and space. It was misguided, Napoleon thought, to compare him, that is Jesus, to all other great men of history. And here I'm quoting, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. That's our king. Displaying his rule as he progresses in his sacrifice. Friends, this points out two beautiful things and here's the point of this inquisition. What does it expose about our king? One is the substance of his rule. The substance of his rule. It's way different than anything you could possibly imagine. It's better. Here we are milling about with politics and power plays and possessions and stuff and we're thinking like that's where real power is. And Jesus is saying, look, I will expose you to the real world. All of this will pass away. A new heavens and a new earth will be created. And just as I have died and so rose again, everything will be resurrected and made better and finally fully enjoyed under my rule. The substance of his rule is truth. It is reality. There is something better. Everything that you chase and sex and stuff and significance is a mere shadow of what He is offering under His imperium. He is the real thing. The substance of His rule is something greater. It isn't just someone who forces you to do what He wants. He compels by love. The love of Christ constrains us. That's what we were talking about last week. There's no more guilt for those who have come by faith to Christ alone for grace Like, all that we do for Him now is out of gratitude. It's out of love. It's not out of law. It's not like we're cowering under Him, like trying to fulfill His demands. He fulfilled all the demands for us. He satisfied everything that needed to be satisfied. Now, it's our joy. The source of His rule is real life here and now and eternal life beyond the here and now. I would just warn you, those of you who think that you've found power in some other way, maybe, of course, we've rejected monarchical imperium, but here's what we've done in its place. We've said, okay, I'm going to rule myself. I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to be my own ruler. Let me just ask you, how's that working out for you? Do you live up to your own standards? Have you created the life that you always wanted? The self is a terrible taskmaster. You thought by getting rid of the crown off one person's head and placing it in your own heart that you would somehow be liberated? I think that's why there is a mental health crisis in the United States. Because everybody's running around trying to do the job of God and they can't fulfill it. We're like that that king. I don't know if this story is true, but the picture is powerful. That king who was placed in a doorless cage and died in it because they would continue to bring him food and he could never say no. All he had to do was starve himself enough to fit through the door and he died in the cage because he couldn't say no to his own impulses. Friends, We are enslaved to our own sinful impulses. We can't even say no. And Jesus is saying, I offer something better. I'll help you say no to that which enslaves you and yes to that which is ultimately fulfilling, not only for the here and now, but for all eternity to come. The source, the substance of his rule is different. How do we know that it's so different? It's the second thing that we investigate about his reign because of the sacrifice because of the sacrifice the way that he wins your heart is through sacrifice somebody's brought out an interesting point about barabbas they said if uh, architecturally things are set up the way that they believe barabbas would not have been able to hear the entire conversation he only would have heard the official cries of Pilate, and the cries of the people And this is the way one envisions it. This is the only stuff that Barabbas could potentially hear. Pilate, which of the two do you want me to release to the crowd? He doesn't know anything. (laughs) All he can hear is from the crowd, Barabbas! And Pilate, what shall I do to him with Jesus who is called Christ? Crowd, crucify him. Pilate, why? What crime has he committed? Crowd shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate washing his hands. I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Crowd, let his blood be on us and our children. Now that's what we know happened. But what did, what did Barabbas hear? This is all he hears. Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. All he hears is just the crowd call, and he thinks that he's the one that's going to be sacrificed. And and so as he's actually brought out, he's stunned by the fact that he's the one that's released. Friends, that's us. We were the rebels. We were the ones that tried to do things our own way. We were the ones that tried to establish our own kingdom. And that's the very kind of person that Jesus came to die for. Not the righteous, not the people who've got all their mess together, but those who are broken and needy and rebellious and fighting to have their own way. That's who Jesus dies for. I don't know about you, but I like that kind of imperium. I want that kind of rule. And how do you get it? How do you get it? It's to receive it by faith alone. You pay nothing. You just receive. You rely. It's weird. It's strange. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. So, as we stop here halfway through this Inquisition of the King, let us investigate further in our own hearts this week the beautiful mystery of the Imperium of our crucified King. Let's pray. Father, the ironies, the subtleties, the psychology, the, the intrigue of this text is, is complex and it's dense, and yet it's pointed and it's powerful. It points us to Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords crucified for rebels. Or may our hearts continue to dwell upon the goodness of our crucified and risen again Lord. May we treasure, value, Behold, revel in His rule. And for those who do not yet know it, save them even now. In Jesus' name, amen.